it would appear that failing to destroy the child that was being born, the dragon, that old serpent, the devil or Satan, began to pursue the inhabitants of the earth. That great great dragon, verse 9, was cast out of the second heavens, the old serpent called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world was cast down to the earth and the angels with him. Now once he was, at the time he's still in the second of the heavens, but there will come a time when he cannot, when he cannot function out of obscurity. When you come into the earth, you are defined by form. When you are cast out of the heavens, you are no longer afforded invisibility and anonymity. You must then be subject to the creation itself. This was true even of the Son of God. In heaven, He was not visible to humans. We can't look up now and see into the heavens that contain the throne of God. When the Son of God came out of the heavens into the earth, He did so in a body. And when the evil one is thrown out of his place in the heavens, he will be subject to disclosure as well. Following being thrown out, he begins to function in the earth through and in the form of a kingdom with seven heads and ten horns and a little horn that speaks blasphemous things against the sovereign majesty of God. But I was going at the end of the last broadcast to to reference for you two particular meanings of the word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, I told you that there were eight separate meanings which include um, humanity, it includes geography and the like. But number six and seven in Thayer's Greek lexicon identifies the word, identifies two particular applications to the word cosmos. The first is, or number six is, the ungodly multitude the whole mass of man or mankind alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. He goes on to say that they speak, well, he gives historical reference to the aggregate of the ungodly and wicked men in Old Testament times such as in Noah's time. And then he adds uh, the following commentary, 
in reference to 1 John, um, and he says, to speak in accordance with the world's character and mode of thinking. Now, that's number six, mankind as the world under the sway or rule of the cosmocrator. And number seven, worldly affairs, the aggregate of things earthly, the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures and the like, which altogether, which although hollow and frail and fleeting, stir desire, seduce from God and are obstacles to the cause of Christ. So in reference to being worldly, as in 1 John 2.16, to be of earthly origin and nature. And further commentary, obstacles to the cause of Christ and the incentives to sin proceeding from the world. Now, we, we might have guessed as much from 1 John where he said, where he describes the things that were in the world. Let me remind you again. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So there's the world and there are things in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. What what does he mean? by lust, lust of the, he describes it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the the pride of life. Now, the word lust is the Greek term epitomea, from which we get the English word epitome. In other words, someone is the poster boy or poster girl, the poster child, for that form of behavior. He or she is the epitome of the thing. Unpacked, that means that when you give your life singularly in the pursuit of a thing above all else, when you're not restrained by any consequence in the pursuit of the thing, when it dominates, In short, it becomes God to you. And even the things of God are made subject to the pursuit of that lust. You'd pursue the lust more assiduously, more fervently, and more completely than you'd pursue anything else. Now, we're used to thinking of lust as being essentially sexual lust. But this describes 
three categories of lust. Now, sexual lust is a type of lust, but it is not definitive of the entire genre of lust. Lust may be divided into three categories, and the importance of this is this, simply, the construction of the cosmos, this adornment, this arrangement, this systemic way of arranging things, has been arranged in a one-to-one correlation between what a person lusts for, will pursue to the abstraction of every other consideration. Nothing will deter you if you're giving in to lust. Nothing, no, no matter of conscience, no matter of priority, no matter of harm, no matter of consequence will deter you from the pursuit of the thing that now you have come to epitomize. Now, observe the scheme of the enemy. He has constructed a cosmos, which is to say an arrangement of things, systems, which enable the pursuit of lust, that draws on the basis of the pre-existing condition of lusting after what these systems plan or, or advertise to deliver for you. So you can see this great beast, if constructed out of Since it has seven heads, we may assume seven systems with ten rulers. All of these three categories of lust, the lust of the eyes, excuse me, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all of these forms of lust are given the most complete expression within a systemic kingdom comprised of seven systems by which all of what human life may depend upon is fully uh, promised. That is why the beast is able to devour the whole earth and anything that stands against it is going to be crushed, stepped upon and shattered in a time when there is a a war of words defining reality for people. Those who are the people of God are going to present an order of being typified by the man above the water, typified by the four living creatures, obviously typified by a transcendent order that is only believable and accessible in, by, and through the Holy Spirit. But all of the rest of mankind, still caught and entrapped in lust, will find the offerings the systemic offerings of this kingdom 
to be so powerful as to be inescapable. The lust of the flesh, that is the desire to live and to be alive in the body, which is to say, everything that relates to your flesh, the bios. I had mentioned earlier that there are three forms of life. There is the bios, which is the life of the body, suke, which is the life of the soul, and zoe, which is the life of the spirit. These three are complete and distinct forms of life. The thing that is true of the bios and all things related to the flesh, because bios is the life within the flesh, is that it's all perishing, it all goes away. Now, don't for a moment think that this will only work against the world. For decades now, the body of Christ has been subject to teachers who pray to God regularly and have built an entire theology on two principles, health and wealth. It's called the prosperity gospel. And they have exalted it to the place of the primary preoccupation of the living God concerning His children. Now, this point of view is singularly devoid of any transcendent or eternal interest or qualities. It is purely based upon an appeal to the lust of the flesh but they have made it godly, they've dressed, they've dressed it in robes of, that, that, that speak scripture to it. And they say, it's God's commitment to you to make sure that you have health and make sure that you're wealthy. I remember one famous preacher, he's dead now, coming out of this uh, Norman Vincent Peale school of thought, which is the power of positive thinking, which is the root of the prosperity gospel. In fact, Norman Vincent Peale's famous work was called The Power of Positive Thinking. One of his disciples was Fred Trump, the father of Donald Trump and Donald Trump was one of his young young devotees, the young devotees of Norman Vincent Peale. There's not anything that that has been hidden that won't be brought into the light. I don't care what your political affiliation is, this is about unpacking the schemes of the devil, not about whether you're Republican or Democrat. Now, the lust of the flesh matriculated into the one, uh, the California 
Crystal Cathedral fellow, he's dead now, uh, Shula, who was famous for the saying, believe in a God who believes in you. Believe in a God who believes in you. That sounded clever, but that was the doctrine of demons. The current iteration of that, uh, that unholy development is positioned in the saying, live your best life now, and the famous preacher in Houston who preaches this garbage. It is based on a direct appeal to the lust of the flesh and it does not teach you the value of suffering. And only those who have suffered in the flesh have put down the lust of the flesh. You do not put down the lust of the flesh by indulging it. I am not speaking either against health or wealth. However, when health and wealth become the primary preoccupation of our pursuit of God, we are totally subject to the deception of Satan who devours the whole earth in the form of a kingdom, systemic in nature, that appeals to the lust of the flesh. The tragedy of this prosperity gospel and its its, um, subsidiaries is that they're delivering the people of God, predisposing them to being devoured by this kingdom which promises them security in the flesh and financial well-being, health and wealth. So one of the systems of the cosmos, one of these twelve systems has to be a financial system, a global financial system to include trade, to include um, various forms of commerce, to include banking, to include insurance, finances designed to show that by putting your trust in these systems, your financial well-being will be looked after. And the second of these systems that you can be sure of is one of global health. Can you not understand how this present pandemic threatening both of those systems will call forth a global response designed to capture those whose emphasis is upon the lust of the flesh. And and these systems will have a religious endorsement by those who have already concluded that God's preoccupation is with our health and our finances. God said to Israel when He brought them through the wilderness, 
He said, I brought you through the wilderness with its scorpions and its snakes to test you so that in the end it will go well with you. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so he said, in the testing, in the wilderness, he said, I tested you and when you hungered. So part of the testing is that you will be hungry or you can expect to be hungry. But the answer isn't that you're hungry and you just die of hunger. No, he said, I took you out into the desert where you couldn't tend flocks and herds, where you couldn't grow crops of grain, where you couldn't uh, generate an economy from the desert that could support you. So you were going to be hungry in the place I took you, so that I could appear to you and feed you. But I fed you with an economy for which there was no explanation. But I did it to teach you that when you that you can rely entirely upon what I tell you. So it's but but Israel continued every day to go out and look for manna. And even when Jesus came, he accused them of having a DNA that predisposed them to receiving manna. This is from John chapter 6 when he fed the 5,000. He said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and have perished. God meant to teach them about the bread of life on the table of show, the show bread, the bread which was also called the bread of His presence. If all you have is the handout from God, Jesus told those who followed Him the next day around the Sea of Galilee to the town of Capernaum, He said, don't labor for the bread that perishes. I am the bread of life. My my charge against the health and wealth gospel is that it is an end within itself. The people do not know God. They have not been matured, they haven't been raised up to know God. They've been encouraged to seek God for their daily bread, to pay their bills, to get a better job, to have an increase in finances and the, and the like. And when one of the, when the leading proponent of that gospel proposed to speak for God in the earlier months of this year, claiming to speak from the office of the prophet of God, he was thrown down from his perch because he didn't know God. He was speaking out of the emotions of his soul and he was a soothsayer. He wanted to soothe and assure his followers and dared to propose to speak for God and God cast him down. 
And according to Ezekiel, when God casts down false prophets, they never rise again. There'll be no second or third act for this character. The lust of the flesh is the addiction to being supported by the systems of the world. The lust of the eyes, that lust is about fulfilling your idea of what God has called you to be and to do. Everybody has to have a vision for life. And the reference here speaks of a vision. The eyes is literally the word from which we get the word ophthalmology. And it's a, it's a vision, the, by implication, vision, Strong tells us in 3788. And uh, it figuratively refers to envy, uh, to jealousy, to a misguided sight. So it, it has to do with comparisons, not being content with what God has given as your portion, but coveting and desiring the position of another, all of which has to do with a broken soul that only views value by competition. Such a person does not understand that there is an order beyond equality. Equality is the best we can hope for in an inherently competitive order. But uniqueness is the indication of being endowed by God with particularity. In other words, you're not to compare yourself the vision you have should not be by comparison to what someone else has. So what we know about this, the systems that will come from this is they will posit and purport some form of equal distribution or if you like equality, equality. And the pride of life is the third of the three lusts, upon which the systems of the cosmos are constructed. And the pride of life is self-confidence or boasting. It's the word alzonea, and it has to do, it contains the, 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 the idea of being um, boastful, proud, etc. So the systems of the world will allow you to boast on your accomplishments. It is based upon what you can do. It's based upon who you know, what resources you have, what you can put together, in order to function in the way that you think you ought to. Incompleteness. The systems of the cosmos are designed to entrap you 
in a belief that whatever you lust for by way of the lust of the flesh, whatever you lust for by way of the lust of the eyes, and whatever you lust for by the pride of your life, these systems will offer you as complete a promise of expression as you could hope for, as you could hope for. It will attract like a magnet because it's designed, listen, this is the demonic nature of these schemes, they're designed to fully exploit exactly where you're vulnerable. That's why this beast will trample down and devour the whole earth. And those that it does not consume with its iron teeth, with its machinery, iron is a reference to machine, with the machinery of these systems, it will step on and grind into the dust or it'll shatter. So only those who come from a different kingdom with different systems that are not comparable, they're distinct and uniquely different from everything within these seven systems of the cosmos. Only those who find their habitation in those things will will find their way through this dark time. But it'll be a propaganda war. He'll wage war against the saints. Be a propaganda war. One will appeal to the soul, the other will appeal to the spirit. One will appeal to the fears that are innate to the soul, and one's and the other kingdom will appear to the hope that is engendered through faith. Now, when we come back the next time, I want to begin by discussing what these systems look like and how they function, how they entrap, and what are the alternatives. We are on the edge, the beginnings of sorrows. We're on the edge of some of the most momentous things prophesied from antiquity about to being unfolded on the earth. I'll leave you with this thought. When it's time to change direction, you have to be brought to a standstill. God typically doesn't have you change direction going full speed down the highway. Almost every nation has a system of highways in which you can travel at great speed down a certain highway. When it's time to get off at your exit, you must slow down and when you come to the bottom of where the exit is, you must stop and then, depending on whether you're to go to the right or the left, you make the turn. Nobody would assume that you should exit at highway speed, go down to the point where you need to turn right or left at the same speed and negotiate the turn without reducing your speed. If you do, you will be in a wreck and probably a fatal one at that. This time for the people of God is that pause to reset. 
He's taking us off the highway of where we've been traveling and at the speeds at which we've been going and He's bringing us down to the place where, we, where we're brought to a stop. We are at a stop. In this time, God is speaking very, very distinctly. And unless you keep going at the same speed, you'll thereby passing your exit or trying to wait out in a fitful fashion the rest that God has brought us to and not learn to enter into His rest, what lies ahead is the entrapment of the cosmos. Part of what God wants you to consider, what He's doing now, the things He's bringing up are all the things that you've put off in your life, you've put off dealing with. If you will attend to the word of the Lord, He will begin to extend you the grace to fix things that you have neglected, which if left unfixed, you will have no choice but to be either devoured by the beast, this global kingdom, or trying to stand up to it, it'll crush you, or alternatively, shatter your ability to try to live apart from its its power. The only thing you can do in this period of rest, the only thing you ought to do, is transition intentionally in a more invasive way into the Kingdom of God. And that is by dealing with the blockages that have been in your life that your enemy has used up till now to prevent you from doing that. Use the time wisely. It is of strategically great importance. Its value, the value of this time of rest in the midst of the COVID-19, the value of it cannot be overstated. This is Sam Solon. We'll continue with discussions of the systems of the kingdom, the systems of the cosmos, we'll contrast them, we'll look at how God means to settle you in the land of His uh, habitation. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.